Well, what a blessing it was. All right, well, we've come to week four of our Advent series, We dis- Rediscovering Christmas. The last few weeks, we've talked about hope, peace, joy, and today we're looking at the power of love to bring good news in troubling times. Now, given that a nor'easter has just dumped a bunch of snow on us, I can think of no better place to start a discussion on love than to reference a movie that regularly plays in my house, and that is the movie Frozen. Some of you have seen it, some of you have not seen it, but I'll give you a little bit of background. Uh, The Disney film Frozen takes place in the kingdom of Arendelle, where Princess Elsa, and she's, if you don't know, she's the blonde one in the front, has the power of freezing and creating ice and snow. Now, the princess's gift is hard to control, especially around her sister, Anna. And so Elsa isolates herself in her room for fear of hurting Anna with her increasing power. But Elsa continues to struggle to control those powers, and after an incident where she accidentally freezes the kingdom, the whole kingdom, uh, she flees to the mountain and sings that blockbuster song, Let It Go. (laughs) Now, Anna chases Elsa, but because Elsa is afraid she could hurt Anna, she demands that she leave, and Elsa loses control of her powers again, accidentally hitting Anna in the heart. And then they have to go to a family of trolls who greatly understand this magic, And they tell Anna that only an act of true love can save her from death. And so you get to the end of the movie, sorry to spoil it, but it's been out for like eight years. Um, Anna sacrifices herself for Elsa, and Elsa is a, when Elsa's attacked by those that are afraid of her power, and this is what Elsa says, she says, Anna, you sacrificed yourself for me. I love you, Anna replied. And then Olaf, the the true star of the film, on a snowman sidekick, remembering the troll's prescription, says an act of true love will thaw a frozen heart. And then Elsa replies, yes, an act of true love will thaw a frozen heart. Love will thaw. Yes, love, love, love. Now, the concept of love is often referenced in popular movies these days. But it's never really ever defined, right? Uh, Love can become this nebulous feeling, and in the case of Frozen, sometimes it's an action. The singer, Hathaway, wrote a popular song with this title, this question title, What is Love, right? How do the lyrics go? What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. No more. Whoa. What is love? That's right. Love is a powerful thing. The song warrants an answer to that question, what is love? Now, a recent article in the Wall Street Journal tried to explain to us that real love doesn't come from some supernatural force like God. Instead, they said love is just a bunch of chemical reactions in your brain. According to the article, neuroscience has discovered that the heart, if you didn't know this, the heart has really little to do with romance, okay? Instead of saying, I love you, If you're a knowledgeable lover, you would actually say, darling, dopamine floods my caudate nucleus every time I look at you. Love and attraction are, according to neuroscience, are are tangled in this convoluted wiring of the brain. And so the answer to the question from neuroscience, what is love? Neuroscience tells us that love is a condition involving neurons and neurotransmitters, hormones and receptors and circuits in your brain. 
Cognitive science defines passionate love as an elevated activity in the brain pathways which cause feelings of euphoria and strong motivation and heightened energy which can induce sleeplessness, loss of appetite, and obsessive thinking about the beloved. Well, that all sounds romantic. But is it true? Right? Is love just a bunch of neurotransmitters firing in our brain? When many modern people think of love, I think this may be what they have in mind, but there's a famous verse in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verses 4 to 5, and it says this. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now, these verses are famously called the Shema, and for thousands of years, Jewish people have prayed these words morning and evening as a way of showing their devotion to their God. But what does the word love mean here? Well, the Hebrew word for love is is the word ahava, ahava, which refers to the care and affection one person shows another, and in this case, the affection would be shown towards God. But conversely, if you look at other sections of the Old Testament, the word refers to God's love, and it always originates from God's character. In other words, love emanates from God. And since we are made in God's image, we will also love as he loves. Now, if you go to the New Testament Gospel of Matthew, Jesus very famously takes this command and expands its meaning. And so a Pharisee, a teacher of the law, approaches him and tries to trick him and asks this question. He says, teacher, which is the greatest commandment? And Jesus replies, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, notice what Jesus does here. He, he emphasizes the need for us to love or have affection toward God, but he also links love to an action, right? And throughout Scripture, we see that love is not merely a feeling, it is an action. The way we show our love for God is by showing love for others. And so by stating it this way, Jesus takes that modern view of love and turns it upside down. It's not just a feeling, it's an action, or as Toby Mac famously said, it's a verb. Now, this is what Christmas is all about. Jesus took an action to come to earth and rescue us. He is God's perfect love on display. Now, as we come to the end of 2020, I would have to say that 2020 has not been the year of love, right? In many cases, 2020 has been a year filled with with some hate, And so as we come to the end of this Advent series, let's talk about the power of love over hate. Now remember, Advent means coming or arrival. We are eagerly waiting with expectation for love to come into the world in the form of a baby. So this morning, let's rediscover God's love and how it can transform our view of, I think, at least three groups of people. First, love can change the view view we have of ourselves. Second, love changes our view of fellow believers. And then finally, love changes our view of our enemies. Those are the three things I'd like to talk with you about this morning. And in a world fueled by hate, we need the cooling power of love to change our world. So let's pray as we, as we start. Heavenly Father, we come before you and thank you for your goodness and your grace, Lord. We thank you for the great gift of love that came at Christmas time. 
We thank you for our Savior. We thank you for um, his act of love. And so I pray for my friends today that you would speak to our hearts, Holy Spirit. Transform us. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So first, God's love changes our view of ourselves. Now, in order to see ourselves rightly, we must envision ourselves sitting before a holy God, which requires us to embrace two truths. First, I am undeserving of God's love and mercy, that I, Bob Erbig, am a rebellious sinner and deserve God's wrath for my sin. And that truth, I got to say, bristles up against the modern ego of the modern listener, right? It's, it's unthinkable to say that we are sinners in need of salvation. But secondly, even though I am unworthy of God's love, God provided a just solution by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die in my place for my sin. So the Apostle John writes a letter to the church and speaks boldly about the topic of love. This is what he says in chapter 4 of his first letter. He says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. And, and listen, we gloss over these verses, but this is really an amazing truth right here. Even when we were unlovable, God chose to love us. Though our sin renders us repellent to a holy God, when he saves us, he not only washes our sins away, but he plunges us into Christ. We become so organically and intimately connected with Christ that when God looks on Jesus, he sees us. That when, God lo- when he looks on us, he sees Jesus. When God loves Jesus, he loves us in him. When God loves us, he loves his son in us. The Father does not love believers because we are lovable, but because Jesus is infinitely lovable and God has made us one with him. It's the doctrine that theologians call union with Christ. And because we're one with him, when the Father pours out his love on his son, that love washes over us as well. And I need to make this point this morning because some of us sitting in the room today or some of us watching at home, sitting on our couches or in our beds or wherever we are, really have a difficult time believing that God loves us. Some of us really have a hard time believing that God could love us. We don't truly believe that we were worth Jesus coming to earth to rescue us. And what we need to do this morning and what you need to do at Christmas time is rediscover the love of God for you. Now, that word showed is the Greek word phanerou, which refers to something revealed which was previously hidden. In other words, God's, God's love for humanity, which was present at the dawn of time, was partially revealed in the Old Testament, is now, through Christ, fully unveiled. And if you're struggling again today with whether God loves you, just let this verse sink in your soul. Let it wash over you, Christian. This is the message of Christmas. God sent his son into the world as a baby in order that you might live through him. He came to give you a flourishing life. And then he gives this definition of love in verse 10. It says, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now remember that Hebrew word, ahava, right? It means the care and compassion one person shows another. Well, in this verse, John is saying that even when we did not ahava God, God showed ahava to us. 
Jesus came to earth as a baby, the light of the world, and one day when he got older, he gave his life for us. That is love. That's what John says. And it is, it is this love that he showed for us. In fact, William Reese wrote a beautiful hymn entitled, Here is Love. And he captures this verse in, in one stanza. He writes this. He says, Here is love, vast as an ocean, loving kindness as a flood, when the prince of life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood. That is God's love. And when you know God's love, you can rest in it. Verse 16, he says, And so we know and rely on the love of God for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. Now, the word rely, as I put up on the screen there, is, is in other translations the word abide. And what John is saying is that in light of God's amazing love for us, we should rely, we should remain, we should, we should stay in that love and trust in that love. But the problem for many of us, which I just alluded, is that we, we stop believing that truth about God's love for us because we are persuaded by the devil's lies. And I think that's a big part of what John is saying here. We have to believe that God loves us and not be deceived. Now, what do the devil's lies look like? Well, maybe he tells you, he whispers in your ear that you are unworthy because of past mistakes you've made. Or he tells us that we're unworthy because of the lies that someone else told us about us. That's what happened to Bruce Springsteen, the boss, right? Born in 1949, Bruce Springsteen was the eldest of three children and the only son in a working class family in Freehold, New Jersey, just a little south of here. The house in which Springsteen spent his early childhood was literally a ruin, just a, a wreck, walls collapsing. A subsequent house they moved to lacked running water. So the family, would, they, what they would do is they'd fill a single tub up with pots that they heated on their gas stove downstairs, and the kids would take turns bathing in that same water. The family relationships lacked stability. Bruce's grandmother was devoted to him. His mother was loyal to her brooding and unstable husband, but rules in that house were un, un, non-existent. At five and six, Bruce was staying up until three in the morning and sleeping until three in the afternoon. He ate whenever and whatever he wanted. In his memoir, Springsteen writes, it was this place where I felt an ultimate security, full license and a horrible, unforgettable, boundaryless love. It ruined me and it made me. Now later in his life, Springsteen writes that he started therapy and he probed the mess that he was. He borrowed that phrase from his dad. And he describes his habit of cutting off romantic relationships after a couple of years because he was clearly still wrestling with that horrible, unforgettable, boundaryless love. This is what he says in his memoir. He says, I wanted to kill what loved me because I couldn't stand being loved. It infuriated me, outraged me that someone would have the temerity to love me. Nobody does that. I'll show you why. It was ugly and a red flag for the poison I had running through my veins, my genes. Part of me was rebelliously proud of my emotionally violent behavior, always cowardly and aimed at the women in my life. 
Now, Bruce had a hard upbringing, right? a challenging relationship with his dad, and he started to believe that he was not worth loving. And as far as I know, the boss is not a Christian, and the solution to his love problem is to recognize who he is before a holy God, that even though he's unworthy, God can still choose to love him. Now, some of us here today or listening at home are like Bruce Springsteen. We need to have our view of love turned upside down. We need to stop fearing love like Bruce did and heed the words of John in 1 John 4, 18. There is no fear in love, he says, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And this verse is about judgment, but it's saying if we abide in God's love, if we receive God's love through Christ, we will be saved. As author Scott Sauls puts it, in Jesus, our judgment day was moved from the future to the past. And that is the great truth of the gospel. One day, all of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, but because of God's love, the judgment that would have fallen upon us moved to the past. Our judgment has been turned upside down because Jesus took on the judgment in, our play, in, in the past so that we could be embraced in the future. That is mercy. And what good news in troubling times? That our future is secure. That God's love has rescued us. That is the message of Christmas. And here's the thing. Once we recognize that God can love us, it empowers us to share that love with others. And that gets us to point two of how love changes us. Love changes our view of fellow believers. Now, all of us have walked in this room today, or if we're sitting at home, we are having, I'm, and I'm willing to wager, that we're, willing, we're, we're having a difficult time loving someone. There is someone we're having a difficult time loving, amen? Now, it could be yourself, like we just talked about. It could be an enemy, which we'll get to in just a second. Or it could be your fellow believers. And I say that because, sadly, 2020 has put the church in a pressure cooker, and there's been a lot of things that have come out, right? Christians are arguing over many issues. People are leaving churches over secondary uh, political or theological issues, We're having a difficult time loving our fellow believers in a lot of cases, but I think if we rediscover the message of Christmas and let the love of Christ turn us upside down, it will change our view of the people that are sitting around you right now. Look at what John writes in verse 7. He says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. Now, over and over again in John's gospel and in John's letters, he uses that phrase, love one another. And he's talking about believers. And John offers two reasons Christians should love one another. First, love originates with God, and we should be marked by that love. Remember, love is showing care and compassion for another person. Second, love is evidence of knowing God. In other words, if you don't love, you don't know God. And in John's theology, literally, it's that simple. If we are children of God, we will display this characteristic. Now, pause for a moment and just consider the truth you see on the screen there. God is love. And we take that for granted, like literally. Theologian J.I. Packer said this statement right here is 
one of the most tremendous utterances in the entire Bible, and yet we gloss over it. Maybe we're even glossing over it right now. Yeah, 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 I get it. You've said it a bunch of times. God is love. I get it. Whatever. But seriously, I mean, God is so, it's lo- he's loving in all he does. And if we really believed it, if we really saturated ourselves with that, how would it change our life? How would it change the way we treat other people? How would it change the church? John exhorts us, verse 11, he says, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. Since God loves us, we also ought to love one another. I mean, again, there it is, right? But if you look at that second clause, what is he saying? He's saying, nobody sees God in the flesh, but if we love one another, what? People will see God. That's what John is saying. That is quite the call for the church, and so we should ask, how are we doing? Verse 19, he says this, we love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar, For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. And this is what Advent is all about. (laughs) Spreading the Christmas spirit is really about telling people how God loved us first by sending his son. Where does it begin? It begins in the church. Christ's love fuels and propels us to love our own first. Now think about this. How does it advance God's mission if people come into a church and they assess that it is unloving? What did Jesus pray for his followers in John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer? He said, I pray that my followers would be one. Why? Because the local church is the hope of the world. Jesus wants his church to be a force for good, for the glory of God. And really, who wants to be part of a church where Christians are not loving toward one another? Too often I hear that people have a love-hate relationship with the church. And when I hear the phrase love-hate relationship, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Think about it. A love-hate relationship is characterized by extremely conflicting emotions. For some of us, it's food, right? I love that cheesecake, but I hate the way it makes me feel afterwards. For others, it's a relationship. How is it possible that I can simultaneously love this person, and yet they drive me so crazy? There's a love-hate relationship there. Now, personally, I have a love-hate relationship with snow, and I was reminded of this several days ago when Mother Nature dumped like, I don't know, 10, 12 inches on my driveway. I was reminded that I love the first glimpse of white snow of the year. It's beautiful. I love the, the fresh cold air in my lungs. I even love the opportunity to, to fire up the snowblower and clean off my driveway. But I hate it when the snowplow comes through and pushes the snow back onto the front of your driveway after you spend an hour or two cleaning it off. Does anybody else hate this experience? Yes, you can spend an hour clearing off your driveway only to have a mountain of snow back blocking the end of your driveway that you have to spend another two hours cleaning off with a shovel because it's too heavy for your snowblower to work. It's a mess. 
Now, here's the thing about the church. If we are not fueled and propelled by love, we have a lot of people who start driving snowblowers, or I should say, start driving snow plows. And every time we dig out the end of the driveway, someone can come along and create a huge barrier at the end of the driveway that we got to dig out again, and it becomes exhausting. Love changes our view of fellow believers, that no matter who they are, what their background is, we start to see them as people worthy of God's love. And that builds God's kingdom. That brings light into the darkness. God is love. And his love lives within us and will bring good news to those who are in troubled times as they rediscover Christ's love at Christmas. But there's one more group we have to address, and that is our enemies. Love changes our view of our enemies. When Jesus was born on Christmas Day, he was a child king, even if many people didn't realize it yet. In fact, people of wealth came to see him. They were called the Magi. Who were these mysterious visitors from the east, we ask? Well, we're not entirely sure who they were, but we know that they followed a star a long distance to find and worship the promised Messiah. Some scholars even think they were from China. At any rate, whether or not they were astrologers or some kind of rulers, the Magi were noble and wealthy men who demonstrated God bridges divides. Because the Magi were esteemed people. They were the opposite of the lowly shepherds we've heard about in previous weeks. More importantly, they were Gentiles, not Jews. And their inclusion in Jesus' birth story echoes the radical idea that Christ the Messiah brings salvation and restoration to all people, not just the Jews. Jesus' kingdom is one, listen to this, of upside-down love. Now, the, this upside-down way of thinking characterizes Jesus' ministry, and when baby Jesus grows up and gets older, he, he starts preaching, and he preaches this famous sermon in Matthew chapter 5 to 7, and many times in this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uses the phrase, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. In other words, he's taking their understanding of a concept and turning it upside down, and look at what he says about our enemies in Matthew 5, 40, Three, it says this. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, there it is. Again, he's defying the audience expectations. And the Jews who were listening to Jesus would have recognized this reference to the law in Leviticus 19.18. God's word commanded them to love their neighbor. Now, what's interesting about that verse, if you go back to Leviticus 19.18, it never says, hate your enemy. The teachers of the law assumed this command meant they should only love our neighbor, and it naturally follows that you would then hate your enemy. But Jesus challenges this assumption, verse 44. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And you say, what? <laughs> what? Jesus, are you crazy? I mean, the good religious person who's listening to this would say, that is not what I was taught in Sunday school. That is not what I learned in fifth and sixth grade. I can certainly love the people I like, but my enemies, no way. I mean, come on. But here's Jesus' point, right? Love changes our view of our enemies. And if we know that God loves us and that God himself is love, shouldn't we act like God? I mean, that's the question, right? 
And that's the point Jesus makes clear next in verse 45. He says, you love your enemies so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Now, I really want to press hard into this verse here as we finish up this third point here because Jesus is making a radical statement. Love your enemies. Yes, verse 45, but he begins, love your enemies so that, meaning that we should love our enemies so that we may show ourselves to be children of God. So let me ask you a question. What did God do at Christmas? At the first advent, what did God do? Did Jesus come down as a baby to go hang out with his baby friends? No. He came into a war zone with donkeys and mules and a smelly manger. He came to live amongst his enemies. In fact, Paul tells us later on that we were his enemies until we surrendered our lives to him. Baby Jesus, little baby Jesus in the manger, came to love his enemies. And church, this is hard, right? We have an easy time hanging out with the people who think like us, who believe like us, who eat the same food as us. I mean, if you like pizza, it's really hard hanging out with the guy who likes sushi, right? But to love, to spend time with our enemies, I mean, that requires us to believe in this upside-down love of Christmas that we're talking about, or rather to rediscover that upside-down love of Christmas. And Jesus presses even more. Verse 46, he says, for if you love who you love, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors, the IRS of the day, do they not do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Now again, pause and really think. This is the love week, right? What is he saying? And he's talking to the religious people who thought they had followed all the rules and they'd be rewarded. But the translation is, if you love the people only who love you back, only the people who like you, only the people who are easy to spend time with, who are not socially awkward, who agree with your point of view, what reward will you have, is what he says. If you only say hi to the people you like, are you doing anything different than the Gentiles, the people who don't know God? What did John say earlier? God is love. And whoever does not love does not know God. And I, I get it. Listen, in that context, he was talking about fellow believers. But what's Jesus saying here? He says, you've heard it said, I said, love your, love your neighbor. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And again, that is hard, right? Because when it comes to our enemies, most of us want to live out that, that Old Testament story of Jonah. The prophet Jonah, right, God calls him to go speak to his arch enemies, the, the Assyrians, the people of Nineveh, their capital city, the people who had, who had attacked and wiped out part of his people. And because of his hatred, he literally hated them. Because of his hatred, he ran away and was swallowed up by a big fish. And, and that's what we do, right? We run away. 
But if we knew that God loves us, if we're a church filled with loving people, shouldn't we also love our enemies? <laughs> well, especially in 2020, I think it's, it's probably a lot easier to hate our enemies. Author Anne Lamott offers a really powerful observation. She says this, you can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people that you do. That, that's a statement, isn't it? Now, I want to challenge you to ask this Christmas that age-old question, what would Jesus do? Yeah, I know. I was in high school. I had the bracelet, WWJD, right? <laughs> what would Jesus do? Or rather, the question is, what did Jesus do? Didn't he leave his throne in heaven and come to earth a place filled with his enemies, not, not as a mighty warrior. And I got to tell you, if I was coming to meet my enemies, I'd want to come with like the full garrison. But what is Jesus? Jesus comes as a, the most vulnerable among us. He comes as an infant, a baby. And I got, to, I got a baby in my house right now, <laughs> not mighty, right? But that's how Jesus came. And now he says to us, love your enemies so that you might show yourselves to be sons and daughters of God. Let me share with you a story that maybe could show how this looks. It's a story about two farmers. Very agrarian, right? Two farmers. <clears throat> they're neighbors, and they, they've, uh, they've been feuding for years. They were friends, but now they're feuding because of something that happened. They, they haven't spoken to each other in a long time. The whole thing started over a cat, right? I know there's some cat people out there, I would never start a fight over a cat. I'd just say, you can have it, right? But these guys were fighting over a cat. The cat was a stray, and both of these farmers began feeding this cat and claimed the cat as their own. That's my cat. But from there, everything went downhill, right? The neighbors, they quit talking. There was a grudge that escalated to the point that one of the farmers decided to build a ditch in the middle of their properties. And then one day, a carpenter came through the area looking for work. And he knocked on the door of one of the farms, and the farmer said, listen, if this guy over here is going to build a ditch and divide us even more, then, then I might as well as finish the job. I don't want to see him. I don't want to look at him again. Why don't you, Mr. Carpenter, build me a big fence so I don't have to look at that guy over there? And the carpenter said, okay, uh, I can do that, but I need a lot more wood than you got in the shed. And so the farmer goes into town to buy some more wood, and the carpenter starts, starts working, starts building. Well, the farmer who went into town comes back, and he's driving down his dirt road to his home, and then he looks across the field, and he doesn't see any fence. And he said, what's going on here? And he, he comes up to his house, and he realizes that instead of building that barrier, that fence that he wanted, the carpenter actually built a bridge across the creek. That's what he used the wood for. And then when he gets home, he's got his neighbor, the other farmer, he's walking across the bridge, like surprised. He's got an outstretched arm and a big sheepish grin on his face, and he says, you're a brave man. I, I didn't think you'd want to hear or see the sound of my voice again. Can you forgive me? And the first farmer, was, the guy who went to town, was so surprised that he reached out his hand to shake his neighbor, neighbor's hand, and then this, <laughs> the countenance fell, and he gives a sheepish grin, and he says, Ah, uh, I knew it was your cat. Now, this story is told by singer-songwriter David Wilcox 
And he uses it as the introduction to his song called Fearless Love. And the song goes on to weave together another narrative about a church protest and a person caught up in remembering that Jesus' teaching to his disciples was to love their enemies by using an example of carrying a Roman soldier's pack twice the distance required. And then the chorus goes like this, fearless love makes you cross the border. Fearless love makes you cross the border. Can we be people of fearless love this Christmas? Can we turn the world's notion of love upside down because they see something completely and utterly different than they see around them? That is what a life transformed by God's love does. It crosses the border into an unknown and dangerous land for the sake of the other. Where is God calling you to cross the border this Christmas? Where is he calling you to take someone's understanding of love and turn it completely on its head? And so as we finish up here, let me come back to Walt Disney. Because we started this message talking about Queen Elsa and Frozen. Her heart was icy cold. Where is God calling you to cross the border? Where does God need you to have your heart warmed? Her sister made a sacrifice to save her, and it changed everything for Queen Elsa. But for us, for us it was a baby who changed the course of history. And I got to tell you, I remember when both my children were born, and when little babies come in the world, it, they have a way of turning your life upside down and your love upside down. As we rediscover Christmas... I wonder if we could let the birth of our Savior turn our hearts and our love upside down once again. And so as we close, and I invite the worship team to come on the stage, I want to share with you the words of the song Noel by Lauren Daigle. Noel simply means to be born. And I pray that you would rediscover that warmth of the love of Christmas, even as I read them. And the, the song goes like this. It says, love incarnate, love divine. Star and angels gave the sign. Bow to babe on bended knee, the savior of humanity. Unto us a child is born, and he shall reign forevermore. Noel, Noel, come and see what God has done. Noel, Noel, the story of amazing love, the light of the world, given for us, Noel. And so as we wrap up these four weeks, we've lit in the candles of hope, of peace, of joy, and today we are reminded of the love of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and thank you for your love. We thank you for your story of amazing love, Lord God, and how it can make us cross the border, Lord, and how we're reminded that you, Lord Jesus, came from heaven to earth as a baby to show us the love that we need. You've turned our lives, you've turned our hearts upside down, and I pray today as we rediscover that love that you would do it once more. You are love. Thank you 
for your sacrifice. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.